As we continue in worship this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. And we'll commence our reading there at verse 43. That's John chapter 1, and starting at verse 43. And beloved, hear once again the holy word of the living God. The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the king, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's fire the reading of God's holy word. And may he bless it to us richly this morning. The gospel writer, at the end of his gospel, tells us this. That these things were written, that ye might believe. Beloved, as we come to this portion of God's word, you and I have to keep in front of us that the gospel writer, all of the gospel writers, really are setting before us the spirit-inspired account of Christ encountering souls and souls coming to him. And the purpose of that is not merely that we might have some kind of historical account. It's not merely that we might satisfy curiosity. The purpose of that is intensely practical. The purpose is to drive us to find that self-same Christ. To, to, to drive us to follow suit as we, sees, as we see souls come to Him. That's the purpose. It's important to know the history. It's important to know the chronology that we have in front of us. But 
But if we don't apply that in this way to drive us to the Christ who is there, then, then beloved, we've misread the Gospels. And so we need to keep that in front of us this morning as we take up once again this first chapter of John's Gospel, that this is a clarion call to you and to me to know this Christ. And beloved, as we've looked at this first Remember that the, the gospel writer presents that to us under certain themes. You remember that in the first portion of that chapter, after the prologue, so verses 15 and following, the gospel writer shows us Christ through the record that John the Baptist gave of him. In other words, John is showing us in the history of the gospel that, that John was a faithful witness to this Christ and, and that souls were left without excuse. John bore God's record of God's own Son, and souls were to believe his testimony. But then you remember, as you come to this last portion of chapter 1, that the gospel writer changes his focus. He moves from the record that John was to bear, that that John was the faithful witness bearer, to, to seeing Christ. And you remember why he does that. If you look back at verse 14 in the prologue, it concludes with these words, that they beheld His glory. And then in verse 29, in verse 36, you have that command repeated, Behold the Lamb. They were to behold His glory. And then really from 29 and following, it is this idea of seeing Christ, beholding Christ, that is principle. That is the theme that we see in various ways, if you remember back to our times together before. And it's still that emphasis in our text this this morning. I read verse 51 twice because that is our principal focus. Because in verse 51, the Lord here tells Nathanael and all of the disciples, Ye shall see. It is this idea of beholding Christ that is central. And how so? How does that come to us in our text this morning? Well, beloved, the first thing we have to recognize is that verse 51 is in reply to what Nathanael says. Nathanael says, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Now, you remember why Nathanael says that. Christ has already, demonstra- has already demonstrated his omniscience. That is, this one who stands before Nathanael is the Son of God incarnate. And through the ministration of the Spirit of God, the Son of God incarnate can see even the heart of Nathaniel so as to say that he is without guile, that he's a sincere believer. And moreover, to demonstrate that, that Christ is, is not hindered, as other men are, to see things in this way, he says, I even saw you from a distance, under a fig tree. And Nathaniel, in reply to that, recognizes omniscience. He recognizes that this indeed is the Son of God incarnate. Now friend, what's striking about this confession is that in one sense, this is one of two correctives that are given in this text. If you just look back for a moment to what Philip tells Nathaniel, you'll see what I mean. 
Philip goes to Nathanael and he says rightly, he says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did right. That's true. But note what Philip then says. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now if you compare what Philip has said about Christ and what Nathanael has just said, you'll see that on two accounts, Nathanael's confession is far more accurate. He calls Christ, Nathanael calls Christ, not the son of Joseph, but the son of God. And he calls Christ as well the king of Israel, not of Nazareth. Of necessity, his his nativity must be of the city of David. Now, why is that striking? Most of the commentators throughout the history of the church have seen Nathanael really correcting Philip for that reason. Nathanael saw more accurately, saw more truly, that while he was the son of Joseph by adoption, and while for a time Christ lived in Nazareth, he was truly son of God and king of Israel. Nathanael saw that, and he saw that by faith. But while Nathanael may be correcting Philip, Nathanael himself receives a corrective in verse 50. There Christ says, because, because I've said these things to you, because you've seen this demonstration of mine omnipotence, and omniscience rather, is that why you believe? Thou shalt see greater things than these. Now, it's a corrective, but only slightly. Here, you ought to see here that Christ is commending Nathanael's faith. Nathanael has seen accurately. That's not really a correction. But what Christ does do is he he reminds Nathanael, and really, as we'll see in a moment, from the scriptures themselves, that a greater manifestation of glory will come. And you who have seen me so in this moment, you will see me so in a greater moment to come. You will see glory more conspicuously in the future. But, but friend, there's something in this text that's incredibly encouraging to us. It's encouraging because Nathaniel was never an apostle. Nathaniel was not an apostle. He was not Barnabas. Uh, Nathaniel would go on. Perhaps he was numbered among the 70. We don't know. But even though he was an apostle, Christ says to him, you yourself will see. Though you're not part of an extraordinary number of church officers, you yourself will see the special glory. And what will he see? The text tells us, heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And I want you to notice here that he's saying here that, that they are not descending to, they're not descending for, They're descending upon the Son of Man. To understand this text and to apply it rightly this morning, we have to ask the question, of course, what is Christ saying? The imagery of verse 51 is obviously that of Genesis 28, the text that we read this morning. There you have Jacob's dream, where the angels of God descend from an open heaven, ascend and descend upon this ladder. Now, 
the first question to understand this is really about the angels. What, what are they and why are they in this vision? Now, beloved, as we look at briefly the purpose of the angelic host throughout the scriptures, as one of our forebears, I think, rightly put it, we're supposed to see them as those who are ministering to divine providence. They're doing God's bidding in time. That's the purpose of the angelic host. And so in Daniel 10 and 11, you see them engaged in geopolitics. In Genesis 19, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in 2 Samuel 24, in the chastening of Israel for, for David's sin. You see them also engaged in judgment. But chiefly in the scriptures, their ministering to divine providence really takes the form of ministering to the saints of God. Hebrews 1.4 Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? If we keep that in front of us, beloved, I think that not only does the text in Genesis 28 make more sense, but as well as our own text this morning. The purpose of the angels here is to show us that that God and his providence will use these most glorious creatures of his to affect the good of his people. They will be doing his bidding, ministering, ministering to those who are to be heirs of salvation. And this imagery then inculcates for us this idea that, that this is the fulfillment of God's covenant. It's a symbol that represents to us that God indeed will affect the good of His people. That heaven has been opened and the blessing of God will come upon those who are heirs of salvation. It is, in short, as it was in Genesis 28, a demonstration that God will fulfill His covenant. And more than that, in our text this morning, Everything centers on the fact that this covenant will be fulfilled upon Christ as he is the ladder that links heaven and earth. The theme for this morning then, just briefly, is this. Holding all of what we've said together, it teaches us that Christ's glory is most visible in his gracious benefits. We come to that conclusion because you remember that Christ tells Nathanael that he will see greater things than these. And the greater thing that Nathanael and all disciples of Christ will see is the covenant of God fulfilled upon Christ. I want us to see how this text shows us that under three headings. I want us to see how, first of all, this text highlights the recognition or the acknowledgement of God I want us to see as well the grace that is received. And finally, the glory that is revealed. And beloved, we will move through these just briefly, though there's so much in this text. Um, But I hope that by God's blessing, these things will lead us to praise his name for the grace that he gives. In verse 49, you'll notice again Nathaniel's confession, Thou art the Son of God. And beloved, that is a remarkable confession. It's a remarkable confession because you don't find something like that until you get to Matthew 16 in the the chronology. And you remember how Christ responds to Peter's confession, like confession, 
He says, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Nathaniel, after one brief encounter with the Lord, makes the same confession that Peter makes in Matthew 16. It's a crucial moment. Something that should be staggering to us. And beloved, that should teach us, shouldn't it, that that God can make much. He can improve much truth, even if there's little that hasn't yet been received. In other words, God can do with a little truth received more than man can do if all of the truth was presented to him at once. Nathaniel only had pieces, but it was sufficient by the grace of God to lead him to see Christ aright. And friend, you, want, you ought to recognize here that, that it is a true confession of Christ that we find here. Uh, when Nathaniel refers to Christ as the Son of God, he is saying that Christ is divine. Now, there's no way around that. Allow the modern scholars to criticize as they will. As you look at John's Gospel later on, whenever Christ says that he and his Father are one, the reason why they stone him is because he says, I am the Son of God. They understood that to be called the Son of God was to attest one's divinity. Nathaniel is very clear. Though other aspects of his Christology may be very much in the dark, we don't know. For Nathaniel, this was clear. This is the Son of God incarnate, the divine Son. I want you to notice that Christ replies to this. The Savior replies, and it's so striking, in verse 51, he, he replies not, not by denying at all what Nathaniel says, but by adding another component to it, one that we, can, I think, can often forget. Nathaniel calls him the Son of God, but in verse 51, Christ refers to himself as the Son of Man. Again, this is not a corrective. Here, what the Lord is teaching Nathaniel is this that he is the incarnate Son of God. And by invoking the phrase, the Son of Man, he's also reminding Nathaniel of something, and all disciples of something, that Daniel himself wrote of. That the Son of God, when he would come, would not only be the Son of Man, but that the Son of Man would be nothing less than glorified humanity. In Daniel chapter 7, you find this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. In other words, beloved, when Christ invokes this phrase, he reminds us that as he is the incarnate Son of God, that will be one day made very conspicuous in his glory. One day that a state of humiliation that he was in would be removed. And the state of exaltation would exhibit to the world, as the Apostle says in Romans 1, that he is indeed the natural Son of God. Now, friend, this text reminds us then that the glory of God is displayed personally in Christ. 
both Nathaniel's confession and how Christ refers to himself invoking Daniel 7 reminds us of this fact. That the glory of God is personally displayed in Christ. Nathaniel already saw this. I want you to note that. Even in Christ's state of humiliation, as John writes in John 1.14, this was already visible. We beheld his glory. That is, even in the days of his flesh on the earth, even, even as he walked among men as a man of sorrows, there were those who could still by faith discern that he was the incarnate Son. And beloved, as you look at this text, you remember that what you have here is this idea that, that Christ then always, even his estate of humiliation, always possessed this glory. It was only veiled. He possessed it all the time. Christ in John 17 makes this very clear. When he prays to the Father, he says, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He doesn't say, which thou gavest me. He says, which I had. Even in his estate of humiliation, beloved, he was the all-glorious son. And Nathaniel saw a glimpse of that by faith. Others, says John in John 1.14, saw a glimpse of that by faith. But the point of our text is, it was only a glimpse that they saw. All would see in his exaltation these truths. It's as though Christ turns to Nathaniel in our text and he says, you see a glimpse of my sonship. And you see it now as I appear and am the sin-bearing lamb. But you will see me more glorious hereafter. What you see now in this veil of humiliation one day will be made inconspicuous to the world as I am exalted as the Son of Man. Uh, you will see me more glorious hereafter when I shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's Hebrews 9.28. That is, whenever he is no longer a man of sorrows because he's the sin-bearer. But that having been justified by the Spirit, as the Apostle says in, in both First Timothy and also Romans 1, that the whole world would see what Nathaniel saw only in peace. The all-glorious Son of Man. And beloved, the glory that would be seen would be that of his mediatorial kingship. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, whereby God also highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. The glory that we're speaking of here is that mediatorial glory. That is the glory of God manifest through the mediator. And it's that glory that is predicated on that which Christ possessed from eternity. I want you to recognize, beloved, that what Christ here says, Nathaniel and all disciples will see, is that you will see through Christ, the incarnate Son, shining from Him, that glory that was always His from eternity. That's the prayer of John 17. And so that picture that you and I have in, in our text, that 51st verse, is just this. That you see me already as the Son of God. But one day between heaven and earth, as, you, as it were, you will see me as the all-glorious Son of Man. The glory of God shining through the exalted mediator. That's the idea. 
Beloved, it's a picture of glory that we're given here. A picture of glory that is centered upon the person of the Son. What you and I have here is the blinding Son of Righteousness. Shining without hindrance, without cloud. And it reminds us, beloved, doesn't it? That if this is the case, then surely our thoughts of Christ are far too low. If this is the Son, the Son in whom the glory of God is most conspicuous, who is himself the eternal and all-glorious Son, then surely our thoughts must be raised. Nathaniel saw this in part. But beloved, have you ever thought that Nathaniel knew far less than we do? And yet is it possible that he had higher thoughts of Christ than we? Just one brief interaction with the Savior. Just a few pieces of gospel truth. And he was induced to make such a confession. And from the heart, a guileless man. You and I who know so much of him. From the heart do we see such things. Christ, in our text, tells us how this glory will be revealed. And it is that he will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. As I've already said to you before that that here you have a picture of the covenant purposes of God fulfilled as heaven is opened and the heirs of salvation are ministered to. In other words, beloved Nathaniel will see this glory most conspicuous as this covenant is fulfilled, as grace is received. And that's our second point, the grace that is received. The question we have to ask as we look at this portion of the verse is, What really is the time frame that we should have in view? In other words, what is the hereafter? I think Calvin's comment here is quite helpful. The hereafter we should understand here is not only referring to one particular time, but but to that whole period of the gospel. In other words, this hereafter points out something perpetual which was always to exist in his kingdom. In other words, through the gospel age, one would see this. Not merely the final judgment, though that will be most clear then, but right through the age of the gospel, this will be evident. The grace of God fulfilling its purposes for his people. Now, beloved, just very briefly, this teaches us that heaven, as it were, is opened with the dispensing of grace. I know in Luke 17, Christ turns to his disciples and he says, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. But as you look throughout the scriptures, you understand how we're supposed to take that text. Christ isn't saying that grace is not visible in some sense. He's saying, in other words, that in this case, it is only spiritually discerned. It will not come with fire. It will not come with with that kind of of glory that the world might look for. But it will be visible. To see that, you look at Titus 3. The apostle there says, The kindness of the Lord, of God, love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. How did the grace of God appear? 
it appeared as men were regenerated, made new. And yes, in one sense that's invisible, but in another sense, beloved, that is appearing. That is the appearance of God's grace at work. And we can extrapolate from there that that all of these things that attend that regenerative work, all that, that follow the believer from conversion to glory, is a work of grace that in some sense is manifest. It is a fruit-bearing work, and the world may see it. And beloved, then you're supposed to see here in that moment, heaven opened. As God in His providence works, as we see in, in Genesis 28, even through the ministration of angels, to make all things together nor called according to His purpose. And even as the Apostle says in Titus 3, even to bring them to life in Christ through regeneration. All of those things, beloved, are like heaven opening. If that's the case, Christian, then how wonderful is a work of grace? It's not a small or a mundane thing. When you see the motions of grace in the soul, when you see providence working for the redounding of God's people. Beloved, you should see in that moment heaven opened, the blessings of God descending. It's marvelous, isn't it, that sinners could see such. Heaven was once as bronze to us in Adam the first. The storehouses of blessing, the fruition of God, all of that was closed to us in our first father. But here the text reminds us that in Christ, heaven is opened. It may even be apparent to those spiritually discerned that God has opened up those burgeoning storehouses of grace once more. And that through his Son, great grace is shown. But beloved, thirdly and finally, and more principally, it's not just the fact that grace is received. But it's what this grace demonstrates that Christ emphasizes most of all. In verse 50, you remember Christ turns and he says to Nathanael, Thou shalt see greater things than these. A greater demonstration than than that omniscience that was already displayed in Nathanael. A greater demonstration than what the apostles up to that time had received. They would see these great things. And what is that great thing? That great thing that will extol the glory of Christ. Ye shall see heaven open. Angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's not just that heaven is opened. But it's that heaven is opened through him. And upon him. That will be the great things that are seen. In other words, beloved, that great thing that extols the glory of Christ most of all is that all grace is received through him. Beloved, it's the dispensing of grace then that exhibits Christ's glory. I want you to notice how the scriptures communicate this to us so very clearly. In the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 48, the Lord says to Israel, Thou wast called a transgressor from the womb, 
For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. He goes on before to say, Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own name's sake, and will not remember thy sins. Why is it that God demonstrates this grace? He says here, for his name's sake, that his glory might be revealed. And then, beloved, you see, as we read in Ephesians 1, how that grace is revealed. It is our election in Christ, the Apostle says, that is to the praise of the glory of His grace. That we should be to the praise of His glory. That we would be unto the praise of His glory. Three times the Apostle says, you've received this grace in Christ that you might be led to praise Him. That you might be, as it were, a signpost to indicate the glory of God. That's why you've received what you have. Beloved, he was made the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, that is Christ, might have the preeminence. And so it's the glory of God, but as it's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, that our redemption points to. Beloved, can I, can I step back just for a moment and, and remind you that this is a holistic work of grace that we're talking about here. It's a holistic work of redemption that exalts the glory of Christ. That demonstrates to the onlooking world at this moment that He is the all-glorious Son of Man. What I mean, beloved, is this. That whenever the people of God find that those providences were for their purging and not for their destruction, that is to exhibit the glory of Christ. That's not something to be taken for granted. Beloved, when you are burning in the furnace of affliction but not consumed, that is an exhibition of the glory of the Son of Man. Heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending upon Him to conduct grace to you. When you see the motions of grace in your own life, enlivened, quickened, that is to exalt the Redeemer. Because it is only from Him that the grace of God is revealed to men. And beloved, then in this text there is that challenge. The challenge is the challenge is not to eclipse then the Son of Righteousness by misattributing glory. The text tells us so very clearly it's the glory of Christ that should be revealed as God's covenant is fulfilled. But how often are we a people? How often are we a people that attribute that glory to some other satellite? To some instrument? If there's a motion of grace, perhaps it's to the minister, to a book, to self. If there is a providence that has been turned and very clearly turned for your good, perhaps you'll exalt the instrument over Christ. Christ says to Nathaniel and to all of his disciples, as you see the grace of God coming down from heaven upon the Son of Man, it is to exalt his name and his name only. It is to lead us as it led Nathaniel to glory in he who is the Son of God.
So, friend, that is a point of examination for us as we close. Do we see that the motions and the gifts of grace are as, as it were, shards of light coming from him, the son of righteousness? In what ways have we eclipsed him? In what ways have we misattributed glory? Beloved, if you know your heart at all, you know that you've done this not just in the past, but very recently. We have hearts that are inclined to do this. To attribute the grace of God to an instrument to self before we do so to Christ. It's not to be so. But there is a point of comfort, beloved, in this text that we can't miss. Is it so that the grace dispensed to the heirs of salvation are an exhibition of the glory of Christ? Then, beloved, we may pray accordingly. Anthony Burgess puts it to us this way. We may pray. O Lord, though we are unworthy to be delivered, yet thy name is worthy to be honored. It is no matter for us, Lord, but what will become of thy great name? In other words, beloved, we can pray for the effulgence of grace to be shown to us for his namesake. If this is how Christ's glory is manifest, you can pray accordingly. For thy namesake, give grace. And somebody might turn around and say, well, not everybody can pray that because not everybody will be saved. Anthony Burgess goes on to say, I think quite helpfully, he says, nevertheless, we must urge the arguments God puts into our mouths. The secret providence of God, we don't know. The secret election of God, we don't know. But we know this, that God has told his people to pray for grace for his name's sake. And here's why. Because as heaven is opened, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines so clearly. Beloved, you can pray this way. You're commanded to pray this way. For thy name's sake, quicken, revive. The exhortation in this text is very brief. If every grace, internal and external, comes only because Christ is the latter, then every grace is to be traced back to its source like streams to a fountain. Beloved, when you and I, when you and I relish God's mercy, but do not drive our minds and our hearts to the source, we have eclipsed the Son of Righteousness. When you and I reflect on the good things God has done, but it does not lead us to think on Christ. We have eclipsed him. Everything then is traceable to him and him only. And beloved, this reminds us too, does it not? That you and I are to plead for more. We are not to be a people content on past mercies. We're to be thankful for what God has done in the past. But the Lord God commands us in the scriptures for his own name's sake to pray for more grace and to pray in earnest. To seek it in earnest and to put to death those things that would mitigate against our enjoyment of him. You see, beloved, this text reminds us that if we would see Christ exalted, we must be earnest in seeing more and more of this shed upon us.
And lastly, the exhortation in this text is that we are to adore him, who is the latter, who is the one that has opened heaven, that all grace might come to his people. Beloved, it's right every day, right every day to ask, how are my thoughts of Christ too low? And right every day to repent and to seek to think more, extol more, of he who is the all-glorious Son of Man. Amen.